the Sports Career Podcast, episode 306. How to start a career in women's football and the entertainment industry. Sports Achiever and welcome back to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. Cannot believe I'm saying this. Welcome to Season 8. It's a real joy every year to come back with a new season and I really do appreciate you supporting this show over the years. I cannot express it into words. Like to say Season 8 to you where this idea really came from starting outside a train station in Surrey I'm amazed and super grateful for the journey I've had with this podcast show. But with regards to today's podcast show, as always, I'd like to bring you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in the event industry, but most of all, the women's football industry. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is John Paul Raynal. John has over 30 years of experience in the sports, tourism and entertainment industry, but currently he's the president and CEO at the Women's Cup. The Women's Cup is the largest professional women's club tournament in the world. So for that reason, it's such a pleasure to have John as a special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, John will share with you how you can start your career in women's football and the entertainment industry. John, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please share to listeners your sports and business career journey. When did it all start? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a true honor. I, I love what you do. And so ha- very happy to be here. My sports career started a few decades ago. And oddly enough, it started in the ski industry, uh, which then uh, in a very sort of long story that maybe we won't have time to share today, transitioned to the uh, soccer industry. But uh, I ran a ski, uh, several ski resorts for over a decade, and then I got involved very much in the, um, the you know, production of the sporting events associated with the, uh, with the ski world and the snowboard world. And that's where I got really my, my sort of sea legs with regards to promoting and putting together major international events. Um, when I transitioned to soccer over a decade ago, I first started with the, uh, with the men's game. Uh, and started, uh, you know, bringing uh, the South American teams, mostly from Argentina, uh, to play in the United States. And that's how I got started in soccer. Uh, and I don't know if you want me to tell you the whole story now or we'll get back to it later, but that's how I... Like, let's just paint the picture to everybody. I, I met John in the Athens Women's Football Summit and we were, he was having a great bowl of muscles and he started talking about his career. I'm like, oh my goodness. So just paint the picture... And then I will unravel some of the onions of what you say, because honestly, there's 30 years that John has in the sports industry in general. And there's so many angles I can take the conversation. So you carry on and then we'll dig deep within that 10 year period, because I think a lot of the listeners can relate that if they want to work, particularly in the football industry in general. Is that cool? So carry on. (laughs) That sounds great. So I'll tell you a little bit of an anecdote on the ski industry, which I think is relevant to 
the soccer industry and you know what it is that that we're, that I'm doing currently and, and how I'm trying to innovate in the soccer industry like I did at the time the ski industry. So when when uh, I got involved in the ski industry, uh, initially I was the head of marketing uh, of the uh, of the ski resort, and uh, it occurred to me that the best way to promote the ski industry uh, would be to be able to promote it. Uh, during what would be called the off season, right? When everybody is not very busy working on the mountain. Uh, and so it occurred to me that the best way to do this would be to generate some marketing actions. Um, this was obviously in South America. I need to make that clear, right? I was uh, at the time running ski resorts in Argentina. Um, so it's opposite season, correct? So what I ended up doing is uh, I came up with this idea that I would build these um, these uh, artificial mountains and uh, fabricate uh, real snow uh, at the beach during the summertime so that people that would go to the beach in, in Argentina would be able to actually see a mountain in snow uh, for the first time for many of them. And they would get interested in the in the subject of participating, you know, uh, as either, you know, uh, clients or, you know, tourists or maybe even competitors uh, in the events that we would perform during the winter. So I, I, I built this gigantic, you know, 300 foot uh, artificial mountain, which is about uh, 100 feet tall and 300 feet long. And, uh, and, uh, and I bought this machine that would make snow at any temperature. And I would make the, I, 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 developed what was called at the time the International Beach Snowboard Tour. And uh, and I would just make snow in the beach during the summertime and have these, uh, you know, world, uh, you know, class athletes doing big air jumps and doing, uh, you know, some crazy stuff uh, at the beach in the summertime to promote winter skiing, correct? So that kind of crazy idea, you, you will uh, hear a little bit later on as to, you know, the kind of things I'm doing in soccer, right? Can we have a timeout? I've got... Curious question. That sounds awesome. Did you get surfboarders come on on the slope? I'm just curious because really, I would assume the activity is quite similar between surfboarding and you know surfing. Was that another? Was that strategically planned to have on the beach? I'm curious. Well, actually, we got, we had you know a lot of the there was a lot of crossover between snowboarders and surfboarders. Mm -hmm. So at the time I got the what would be the 20 top snowboarders in the world to come and participate in this event. And the contrast of having these guys doing big air on a snow mountain in the beach while there were surf, people surfing behind them in the ocean was quite attractive. But I gotta tell you, there was literally 20 to 30,000 people that would gather around our event that were at the beach that day. And they all of a sudden said, whoa, what, what's going on here? Somebody built a mountain? They're actually making snow, it's, you know, uh, you know, 90, 100 degrees here, and they're actually making snow. So all of this uh, provided the sort of uh, sort of contrast, right, that I was looking for, the shock sort of that I was looking for to do something different to promote uh, a ski resort. Uh, nobody had done that before. I don't think nobody's done that since. But that was, um, that was an idea that got me sort of started in this sort of event space where I, where I, could, I realized I could do major events uh, that would have high impact. Um, and anyways, the, the sky was the limit to, to my imagination. Well, sky's the limit up a mountain, you mean. Um, that's so cool. Just on a, I want to touch on this because so many want to work in marketing. With that one case study just then, reflecting from your career, John, what 
have you learned in marketing itself like how to be a good marketer in the sports or entertainment industry i'm just curious on that because you've hit the ball rolling with a great case study how has that supported you now looking forward so i think it's very important to be to innovate and i think it's very important to be different and i've always tried i was because of that action that i did with the ski resort i was given the prize of the best marketer of the year in argentina so I was, I was chosen as the number one marketing concept for that year in the entire country. Um, and I think, you know, uh, my message to future, you know, marketers or, 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 or uh, men and women that are getting into the business of how to promote and sell a product is that you really need to think outside the box, right? Everybody's doing the same thing or everybody's trying to do or copy the same concept. And that's fine because... You know, there are proven concepts that are obviously, um, you know, proven, right? And so if you want to do something safe, you can always do what the other person is doing. But I am of the belief that if you want to stand out, you need to come up with ideas that are, like I said, outside the box. And that allows you to open up a whole new market of, of, of people that you can attract, right? I mean, if, you, if you're talking to the same audience all the time, and you're feeding them the same information that they've, been, they've heard from everybody else. That's fine. You know, you're keeping yourself in, in in the spotlight, and you're making them aware of your product. But if you really want to capture a broader audience, and I'll get back to this with the event that we did last summer called Soccer Fest, which is a little bit of the same idea. If you want to get back, if you want to uh, reach a new audience, if you want to attract a broader group, you really need to think outside the box. And this is what a little bit of what I did with this uh, the snowboard event on the beach. Final one, because it's so relevant. Everything's about attention now, right? So I assume the mountain was what attracted 20,000 people, because I'm not going to mention age, but these are the days I assume with no social media, no like adverts like that. So I want to keep things like in perspective of that period of time. So may I ask yeah. with how did you reach the 20,000 people to come to that event? Or was it the mountain that was already the wow factor already of curiosity? Right. So you got to keep this in mind. We're talking about, this happened in, in the beaches of Uruguay and Argentina, right? There are three major beaches in those countries. Uh, one of them is called Punta del Este in Uruguay, and then you have Mar del Plata and Pinamar in Argentina. On any given day in the summer, there's probably 50,000 people in those beaches already. And they're just hanging out, watching the ocean with nothing to do. So there I go and I build this gigantic mountain and start making snow. And next thing I know, everybody in that beach is surrounding that mountain. So I already had the clientele there. All I had to do is give them a product that they could enjoy, free, right? And uh, so literally we had, you know, just about everybody that was on that beach, 20, 30,000 people gathered around that mountain. And uh, so the communication aspect of the preview, yeah, we had done some communication, obviously, but like you say, social media, we're talking about here 1997 to 2001, right? So there wasn't the social media impact that you'd have today. It didn't exist. And therefore, yeah, there was different ways to communicate. And finally, because it's important to finish the case, did that increase participants going in season of skiing that year as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We had, I think, about a 10% growth in, uh, in clientele. Uh, we reached people that otherwise would have never, ever seen snow. You got to think about the fact that Argentina is a country where you have snow in the south, right? But in the north, 
uh, it's a very different scenario. So a lot of people have never been to Patagonia nor seen snow. So it was a very good way to take the mountain to people that had never seen a mountain and get them interested in the subject. See, everybody, I told you how to get John on the show, and what a great way to start. I'm actually going to put a curveball before talking about football injury, because I'm blown away with this. Fly fishing. I need a little insight. Like, how do you go from winter sports to then writing books and be involved in the fly fishing industry? I'm just, again, like, so much curiosity, but could you just give a little snippet of this? Because I was just blown away going totally different sports, but how do you get into this sport? So I was, I, I went to college in, in Colorado which is obviously a uh, fly fishing mecca. Uh, and my roommates were all fly fishermen. So I got started, you know, in the fly fishing at the time. Um, but Patagonia, where I ran the ski resorts and lived for over 15 years, was also a fly fishing mecca. So when, I, uh, when we sold the ski resort, uh, I decided I was going to take a sabbatical. I was going to take some time off, you know, People don't realize this, but the ski industry is actually, you know, very time consuming, as is the soccer industry. Uh, so I had decided I was going to take a year off and I was going to travel. And I had this sort of uh, goal in my mind, which I was um, I wanted to fish all the lakes, rivers and streams in Patagonia, something that had never been done by anybody else before. We're talking about hundreds of lakes, rivers and streams. And Patagonia is very long, as you know, it's over a thousand miles long. Right. So. We're not talking about a short trip, and we're talking about a time where access to all these places was kind of complicated. So it was quite an adventure. So I set out on this adventure, and uh, and I realized midway through the trip that I um, that that this was great, but I needed to make some sense of all this fishing. Uh, and so I ran into a photographer at the time uh, that, that that I knew, and I said, "Listen, why don't we make a book? Nobody's ever done a book about fly fishing in Patagonia." Um, and so we wrote the first, you know, I wrote the first sort of uh, book on fly fishing in Patagonia as a hobby from my travels of that year. Little did I know that the book would become a bestseller and then that would become an actual business for, for a large chunk, probably I think about eight years of the next eight years of my life. Um, I would, uh, I would spend, you know, writing and publishing books and traveling the world uh, fly fishing. So one thing that was completely unexpected led to a, uh, a publishing company and then to to me traveling, which is actually how I got into soccer. Wow. Let's carry on that journey. But I did have one question because I think this is really important because you do things differently already. On sabbaticals, do you still take them? Because I, I'm going to say this word and I don't use it often. You're definitely an entrepreneur. And, and I learned that with how you think and think of things differently but do you still take sabbaticals now? Because there's so much talk and burnout. Like you said, the football industry is a big machine that doesn't stop. Do you still do that reflect in the last 30 years that help you refocus and get new ideas? Because I think this is important because I want it to help people not work, work, work. There's that rest, rest, rest. And like you said, this was so accidental and it then created a business and almost a bestseller. So a bit worded my question, but I think it's important to highlight what you've just said so do you still take sabbaticals reflecting now from a career development perspective to answer your question i think sabbaticals are super important because like you said it allows you to reset to refresh and i think in life and in business things always one thing leads to another right so when you least expect it there's an opportunity that comes 
around and that it gives you the, the chance to do something different and completely unexpected. And sometimes you're even better at it than you thought you were, or you had no idea you were good at doing this, but as it turns out you are. Um, so I have taken a couple of sabbaticals in my life in, in, in transition moments of, of moving from industry to industry. Um, but I must say, and this is a warning to those getting involved in the soccer football industry, I have not taken a single sabbatical since I've gotten involved in football. It's all time consuming activity that allows for absolutely no time off. Um, and I always tell people that, you know, want to get involved in the industry. You really, really need to love what you do because the hours and the stress and the level of engagement is, is almost second to, no, to second to none. I don't know many other industries, maybe being an emergency room doctor, you know, but uh, it's it's crazy how much soccer consumes uh, of your time and your energy. So, yeah, I've not been able to take sabbaticals since I've been involved in, in soccer. Let's dig. Can we dig deep a bit? Is it due to the meeting side or is it because it's such a, an event industry? Like That's the biggest advice I had when I started out. Somebody said, Ed, doesn't matter what you're in in the sports industry, it's an event industry. And even like for me, my experience at Athens, there was so much going on. I, it was only when I had a chat with you, I actually switched off because it was the end of the event. That meal in the Greek restaurant, fish was, I was like, my job's done. I can actually switch off. So can we just touch on this? I know it sounds obvious to you because this is 10 years of, as you say, like time consumed. But can we dig deep of examples? Is it the calls or is it time zones or is it just because it's the event industry, but it's just football? I'm just curious. And I hope the listeners can learn a lot what you're about to say. So to answer your question, let me let me let me head back. So so I think the event industry Ed, is uh, is very time consuming in general. What whatever event it is that you do, I've done music concerts as well, and so it, it is just as time consuming. I think the issue with the soccer industry that would make it even more time consuming is that there's a lot of variables and factors that you do not control. So uh, in the match production business, there there are many more variables than any other event industry that I can think of. Let's say you put on a seminar or you put on a, a congress or you put on a, a trade show, right? So you go out, you rent the space, you look at the slot, you rent the space, right? And then you go out and, and you, you sell, you know, your slots or your, uh, your, your floor plan and then you market and then you sell your tickets. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward, stressful, but pretty straightforward uh, environment. In the soccer industry, you have all those elements, but then you need to negotiate with everybody involved for scheduling. The pressure on scheduling today is tremendous. Everybody wants teams to play on their leagues slash tournaments. So when you go and ask a team to play for you, you have to battle against their local league, their Champions League, right? Their national team commitments, World Cups, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So first of all, it's the, the most of the time is spent actually trying to figure out how you can do this and who can play. Right. Once you're done with all that, then you got to ask permissions to everybody. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but to put together an international match, you need permission all the way from FIFA down to confederations, down to federations, down to local leagues. So that whole process of authorization is also you know quite lengthy. And then once you've got, got done taking care of all of that, then you have all the other risk variables that, that come into play. When you're having 45, 50 people travel, you know, with connecting flights and 
transport and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then of course you have players getting injured. I've done, I did an Argentina, Italy match in Manchester in 2018. That was an incredibly expensive event, right? I had to hire Argentina with Leo Messi. I had to hire Italy. When I put that match together, Leo Messi was healthy. Kun Aguero was healthy. He was playing at Man City. Made a lot of sense to play there, fan base. Italy was going to qualify for the World Cup. So everything looked great. I went through the whole process, paid everybody, got everybody on board. Next thing I know, Italy doesn't qualify for the World Cup. So now I have half of my audience that was going to be going to the match, not even interested in going to the match. The other half of the audience wanted to go see Messi and Cunaguero. Cunaguero gets hurt. Messi gets hurt. They don't play. Next thing I know, I'm several million dollars into this investment, and all the variables that I counted on got turned upside down. So those are the elements that make it probably more stressful uh, than any other event that, that that you can think of. So, yes. Well, everybody, I've heard this story. I didn't want to mention it because I wasn't sure if we were or not to, but when John kindly shared this, oh, my draw was dropping. And I have to relate to this question. We had a wonderful conversation. So the first question I asked was, I was like, oh, my gosh, what, how do you learn from that experience to where you are now which with regards to risk? And you have mentioned the key metric or the key explanation of controlling the controllables. But... Relating to my question, because I'm going to say it again for the listeners, like how now, reflecting from that example, learning example, how you evaluate risk, even what you're currently doing. But I'm, I think it's so important. And I'm learning this too, John, by the way. And it's easier said than done when you look back in time than looking in the future. So when you asked me this question, I told you that, and this is no secret, but there are not many crazy people that are in the you know soccer, professional soccer promotion business because it's a very complicated, very expensive business. So there's a handful of people that are involved in this um, and they know this secret, I'm going to tell you and your audience, which is that when you evaluate risk, you need to try to minimize risk and you minimize risk by trying to secure certain variables of income right? Now, I cannot control that Messi will get hurt prior to the match. And he's my centerpiece, right? So I go and do an Argentina national team match, and I've done several. And if Messi doesn't play, the interest level goes down 90%, right? Today, the, the industry is very much star-oriented. So those stars really are the major draw in countries where maybe there's not so much sophistication. Like I always tell people here in the U.S., you go to Argentina, you're a fan of a club, you will go watch that club whether they win or lose, right? In the, in, in the UK, it's probably the same, right? There's a fan loyalty that goes from generation to generation. But in uh, friendly matches, and, and certainly in the United States, there's a different philosophy towards the game, which is basically, you know, you have um, stars and people want to go watch the stars, right? Uh, so when one of those stars, you know, backs down at the last minute, you have a problem because you're not going to sell tickets, right? So how do you minimize that risk? You try to get as much income from other revenue streams before the event itself. And that usually comes from either sponsorship revenues or TV distribution rights. So that's how you manage risk in this industry. So if, you, if you're going to wait and try to break even or make money on ticket sales, you're in for a 
surprise or or sometimes disappointment. It can happen. All the stars can align as they have in in several events I've done, and then you you kill it at the box office, right? But but if you've been in the business long enough, you understand that that's uh, that's too much of a risk. So I'm going to kindly put you on the spot because we're going to transition into women's football. What have you really learned from that example? And I'm super grateful you shared that because I was not sure if it would be on the show. So look, guys, this is what I had with a bowl of muscles. No, they were John's muscles. And I, <laughs> I was like, I love this on the podcast. So I'm super grateful that you shared it. But reflecting right now, like, what did you learn the most from that one experience? Because you said it still hurts financially yeah. to this day. But I'm just curious of like, looking forward, how have you... You know, everybody says oh, you always learn from your mistakes, but it's different when we're talking mega, mega events. So I'm just curious right now, how do you learn from that? Particularly now you're working in women's football, which we'll touch on very soon. Well, you learn in many levels, right? When 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 you have a, 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 a bad, you know, financial experience where you lose, in this case, millions, you you it's a humbling experience, right? You have to reevaluate everything you're doing. Right, so you definitely learn, like like any failure in life. I mean, you're gonna fail a hundred times in life. You 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 when you when you succeed, you know, you don't take the time to really pick apart the situation as to why you succeeded. You're just happy with the success, and that's fine. When you fail, you have to look at every single variable and see where you went wrong. So I think that experience made me understand to what extent it was a good idea to take on that level of risk. And to take that level of risk without any of the other mechanisms that I told you about being assured prior to the event, just running into the event saying, you know, I'm going to make money on this because it's Argentina, because it's Messi, because we're playing against Italy, because it was the last match before the 2018 World Cup. I mean, everything looked right on paper. But then you need to understand that even though everything looks right on paper, variables can alter the, the results. So that's, I guess, my major lesson. Moving forward, I was more cautious to understanding, you know, how easy it is to lose a lot of money in this industry. And just one thing I want to touch, because you talked about Messi and the big stars. With what you do at the Women's Cup, I assume player care is massively important because your goal is to get them there safely. And fingers crossed there's no injuries whilst they're there training for the competition. Is that something you look you look at more in detail then assuming they'll be fit and ready. Um, to make sure that they have proper training facilities. Yeah, exactly. So like like next time Messi doesn't get injured, you can try, you can try and control it to the best you can, but not to the individual. I'm just, because I think that was the main problem, but it's very hard because it is somebody who's playing a sport. So it's it's part of elite sport anyway, but. Yeah, of course, Messi came, uh, arrived, uh, you know, he, he pulled a hamstring during practice. It had nothing to do with, you know, what I was, and Kun Aguero had had hurt himself uh, two weeks uh, prior to, to the match. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I provide one of my, my mottos, and of course, we'll talk about this uh, in the Women's Cup, is that at my company, we provide the absolute best experience for the, the players and the teams, right? So we go, we, we, we spare no expense. You know, the, the, the players travel in a business class, and, you know, we charter airplanes for them, five-star hotels, you know, top training facility. So we take care of them as well as anybody in the industry does. Uh, you know, if they get in- But that's my point. You're controlling the controllable a lot more. That's what I'm saying from maybe that game, Argentina, Italy. That's what I'm trying to say. Right, right. But these players, don't forget that these players are playing, you know, hundreds, tens of matches, you know. Before, right, I get before that. Yeah. But look, before we talk about women's football, 
I wanted you to just paint the picture of the like when you started in the men's game and then let's hit women's football, but just to paint the picture. But again, grateful for sharing that case study. I really am. All right. So um, about, I think, eight years into the uh, into the fishing, which was actually a publishing company because of the, the fishing led to, to me starting a publishing company and then the publishing company became very big and then we started publishing books for, for others, right? Uh, not just myself, uh, you know, traveling and the world and fishing. Um, one day I was at the office and the phone rings and uh, my secretary takes a call and it was uh, the president of Boca Juniors, um, which is, as you probably know, one of the, you know, one of the greatest clubs uh, of all time. I think they have more international championships than any other club in the world. Uh, and so, um, you know, this, 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 this gentleman, you know, tells me, listen, I've seen the books that you publish and um, and I think they're the best that I've ever seen. And Boca Juniors is turning 100 years old, the club is, and we'd like for you to uh, publish the greatest book ever published for a soccer team in the history of the world. That was the challenge. And I said, I'm not a Boca Juniors fan. I'm actually belong to, I, I'm a fan of another team in Argentina. But I said to myself, look, I said, this is a very, very interesting challenge. Uh, so I decided to meet with him and we grabbed a, cu a cup of coffee and he said, I'd like for you to go and, you know, to interview all the, um, all the families of the players for the last hundred years and get anecdotes and stories and pictures and things that have never been seen. So people can understand that this has been around for a long time and there's a lot of really good content that's never been published. So I thought that was a really fantastic project. So I put six people together, researchers, and during the course of a year, I sent them out to visit families of players that had played in the 1920s, 1910s, 1930s, 1940s. Uh, and we got a treasure trove of incredible, incredible material. I think we published, and I'll send you a copy, we published probably the nicest soccer book that has ever been published for any club in the world it was 300 pages long coffee table it was just a jewel uh with incredible stories uh you know boca juniors for example was the first team to ever travel internationally to play uh on a on a tour they got on a boat in the 1930s to travel to europe and one of the fun stories about that boat trip and we actually have you know uh, photos and stories that people didn't know about this is the fact that at first they started kicking the ball around the deck with the practice, but they started losing balls as they would fall into the ocean, right? So then they realized the only way they could practice would, would be to tie the ball, right, to their shoelaces. There's an expression in Argentina that when you play very well, it says that tenés la pelota atada, which means you, the ball is tied to your shoe. And nobody ever knew where that came from until we did the research. And that came from that Boca Juniors trip to Europe on the boat so they wouldn't lose the balls, right? And so there's these, these great stories and anecdotes. Anyway, so that's how I got started. So when I started doing all this, I would go pre uh, frequently to, uh, to Boca Juniors and meet with their top management, team president, general manager, and so forth. I became friends with them in the process of making this book. And then one day... Because of my marketing mind, I said, listen, you know, Boca Juniors is one of the biggest brands in the world, and you're not going enough to the United States to develop your product, and you need to expand, you know, internationally with your brand. 
And as a result of that, I convinced them to organize a tour for them and bring him to play in Florida. And so I brought Boga Juniors to play two matches against, at the time would be NASL teams, which were second division. They played one match in Fort Lauderdale against the Strikers and another one in Jacksonville against the Armada. And that was such a successful tour for them. Uh, and, you know, the, the attendance was incredible and the level of interest was incredible. And Boca Juniors had not come to the United States in 10 years prior or 15 years prior. So it was real novelty. As a result of that, when they came back to Argentina, every single club started calling me. We want to go to the United States. So then I brought River Plate and San Lorenzo. And then every club in Latin America started calling me. So I started bringing all the Colombian teams. And next thing I knew, I'd become the largest sort of promoter of uh, South American football in the United States, putting, all, putting on you know, six to eight matches a year uh, for, for these uh, Latin American teams. And then from there, I started getting calls from national teams and I started doing national team matches. And then I partnered up with the folks that had the rights for Argentina and I started doing Argentina matches. But it all started with the publishing company and with Boca Juniors and the book. And this is where I got, uh, you know, basically a little bit of how I got to where I am today. Right. Okay. Just time out because I've got my little checklist. With regards to those competitions, was that when you created Onside Entertainment? Is that what that is? That's correct. Wow. See, I'm good with my research. Hey, so how long that's been going, Onside Entertainment? Before we talk about the Women's Cup, like just to paint the picture for the listeners of the growth there, because what a cool story. That's about 10 years. Whoa. 10 years. Okay. So are you still doing competitions now? Um, Is that still running itself, that Onside Entertainment? So the Onside Entertainment, yeah. So with Onside Entertainment, we have a product in partnership with a, a, a very large uh, Latin American uh, TV production, event production a company called Torneos. And we have a product called Soccer Fest, which we did this year in Daytona. So here's where it gets interesting as to what I was telling you about innovating. And I can segue into why um, I left the men's soccer match-friendly event business to migrate into the soccer fest concept. So when I started bringing the teams to play in the United States, I was really one of the few doing this. And the teams would come very rarely to play here. So it was novelty. So when I brought a team from Colombia or from Argentina, uh, it, you know, it was like, oh, we haven't seen this team in 10 years. And of course, you know, there's a large, you know, Hispanic community in the United States, especially in Florida. So there'd be a lot of Boca Juniors fans or River Plate fans or, or America de Cali fans uh, uh, or Atletico Nacional fans. So they would come in droves. But as I started bringing them every year, I started to kill my own market because I, I wore out the novelty effect. And since the, remember we spoke a little bit earlier about scheduling, since scheduling had become so tight for these teams, uh, it was hard really to, to schedule for them to come, but they would be so exposed. They would be playing so many matches. And then when they finally came here, the fans would be like, oh, you know what? I saw them last year. I've watched 100 games during the regular season already. They're, they're not a novelty anymore. And it's a friendly, so it means nothing. So that's, you know, when the, the numbers started to go down. So the attendance numbers for friendlies started to go down. And that's when I started thinking, you know, what can I do? How can I innovate in the industry to turn a business like a soccer friendly, um, which is, you know, in this case was sort of on the way down, uh, you know, not, no longer growth, right? But now you know, declining uh, uh, on, the, on the financials. What can I do to make this uh, a different 
more profitable business. And that's when I came up with the idea of SoccerFest. So I went to, I was introduced to the people at NASCAR. I don't know if you're familiar with NASCAR, but they have, you know, the circuit is the equivalent of Formula One that they race here in the United States with stock cars. Um, and they had just built this beautiful, they had rebuilt, remodeled this beautiful uh, stadium they have. It's called Daytona International Speedway. And they spent $500 million remodeling this stadium. So they were looking to generate different uh, entertainment because they didn't have, you know, the, the, the business model for them with just two major car races a year, the Daytona 500 and another race they had, was not enough to really, you know, generate revenues for this gigantic uh, uh, building. So I pitched them on the idea of bringing a soccer match there. I said, you know what? I want to bring a soccer match here and I want to run it as, uh, you know, a sort of a special non-traditional event. That was the original idea for Soccer Fest. Uh, and I was going to um, bring Argentina with Messi to play against Colombia after the 2018 World Cup. And we were going to build a pitch, artificial, uh, like a, a not artificial because it's real grass, but a pitch. 3G, like a 3G pitch. Yeah. Like, or was it real grass? Real grass. Got you. Oh, cool. In, in the infield in the of the raceway, of the speedway. Wow. And have this match. And um, so as it turns out, to make a really long story short, I don't know if you know this, but this is part of the variables I was talking about. Messi gets suspended post-World Cup. Uh, and so he can't play. And of course, without Messi, it didn't make, a, make sense. This was a many million dollar investment to build this sort of uh, pitch. So I had to pull the plug on that event. But at the time, I said, but the idea is good because this non-traditional venue concept is good. I like the idea. And how can I make it bigger? And that's when I came up with Soccer Fest, which is, why don't I do a sort of Lola Palooza Coachella of soccer and music where I mix everything all at once? So I build this soccer pitch inside the stadium, inside the raceway, but I have car races happening at the same time. And I have, you know, um, uh, you know, a music festival with top artists. And I have, you know, they have a big lake there in Daytona and I have fishing on the lake and I have, you know, uh, Freestyle Federation Open and the Tech Ball Championships. And it's like everything happening at one sort of full entertainment engagement for the family on a 10-hour-a-day sort of time slot. Um, and so I came up with the idea that had never been done before, not at this scale. And this year, this this last summer, I pulled it off. It was called Daytona Soccer Fest. Uh, and, and, and now we build a pitch. We build a pitch, you know, in five days, a professional... FIFA regulation pitch. We built it in five days. We had four matches, of which one of them was a National Women's Soccer League league match for the points. The first time in history that a league match has been played outside of a soccer stadium in a temporary pitch. Okay? And so, so we pulled it off, and we showed that we can do innovative things to, 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 do, to be different than just a regular soccer friendly. And for your business case here, here's the deal. When you have a soccer match, just a plain out soccer match, you're going to have people, mostly male, right? Um, on a, at a male, at a men's soccer match, you're going to have mostly males that are going to go there for about two to three hours, and they're going to consume X amount, and they're going to get up and leave. But if you do a soccer festival, you have those same people for ten hours, so they consume three X, right? On what's called a per cap, which is concession revenue, and on top of that. With all, the, with all the activities that you have, you make more money, obviously, on merchandise, concessions, 
but you also include the entire family. So it's a 4X or 3X factor. Whereas if you're just going to go to a soccer match, it's going to be you. But if you're going to go to a soccer festival where you're going to have games, music, soccer, you know, car racing, you're going to be able to convince your wife, your kids, you know, your parents, your nephews, your uncles. I mean, it's a whole family event. So it's a multiplier. So this is this is where it made sense to me to, to, to migrate from just a straight out soccer match to a soccer festival and marry music and soccer, which actually work very well together because everybody that loves soccer loves music, right? Uh, so it'd be giving people more entertainment for their money. Quickly, just guesstimate wise, like how many rough families attended with regards to what you've just said? Just curiosity, because for me, this is just awesome. But I'm just curious of the numbers. This first year, we had about 10,000. It was a first year event. So, you know, it takes time to build a model. We're looking to have, you know, next year, we're looking to have 30,000. And we eventually looked at 50,000 or 100,000, like the major music festivals. What we did is we developed a proof of concept. We showed people that this can be done. We showed ourselves it could be done, right? That you could do a major soccer and music festival. And you can have activities and entertainment for the whole family. And that people will come and enjoy a full day of soccer, music, and car racing. Okay, I'm going to be really cheeky now because you've done so many businesses. Do you have like business principles you stand by? Like there's one book I've recently read, Robert Igner, like uh, with regards to Disney. I I was just blown away because he was CEO 15 years. And I'm going to show you this quote because you must apply it because so far with the publishing business went well, the book went well. I'm going to share this quote. A company's success depends on setting high ethical standards for all things, big or small. The way you do anything is the way you do everything. I'm sharing that with you because you're doing that, but I would love your thought on that quote first. But how you look at an idea, how do you build from an idea to a business model? Because I love that you shared it was like this event was proving it worked. And then you're thinking of scalability, not thinking too big early on. Like, as you say, proof of concepts, that sort of business term. So, Oh, man, this is such a cool conversation. But what are your business principles from what I've just said with that quote from your experience? I think that that quote is fantastic because it basically says that anything you do, you have to do well, right? Mm-hmm. Big or small. Uh, and so you set your standards. I mean, I think, you know, my, my motto in my business career has been essentially that. I mean, first of all, think big, right? If you have the ability to do something big, it takes you the, the same amount of time and effort and energy to do something big as to do something small. Okay. So mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that, you know, right out of college, you're going to, you know, spend, you know, millions of dollars promoting an event as your first event, right? Because you need to pay your dues, you need to understand. But once you have that ability, that knowledge, the, the contacts, the access, and you can develop cool ideas and see them through. Because, you know, you know, everybody's got ideas, right? But 99% is the execution, right? The idea is 1%. Because I can, I can sit in, in, in bed at night and I can come up with some fantastic ideas. Maybe I want to build a spaceship to go to, to, to Jupiter, right? But, you know, that's unviable. And maybe I want to build a spaceship to go to Mars, and that's even more viable, but still kind of complicated. And maybe one to go to the moon, but there's a lot of people already doing that because they've executed on these great ideas, right? So having the idea is 1%. Execution is 99%. So when I have an idea like Soccer Fest, I start 
bringing it down to, to, to earth. And I started thinking, okay, well, is this viable? What are the variables? What are the scenarios? You know, run a PNL. Is this economically feasible? Um, am I here? Am I doing this for the long run? You know, can I have, can I afford to lose money the first year uh, and then continue? Because um, a lot of times, or most times, the first year you lose money. Just so you know, this is you know very rare that you're off the gate with a huge success. I mean, it happens, but it's very rare. So. You have to run all these variables, and then uh, you have to apply what uh, Mr. Ryder said, which is, you know, I'm going to do it well. I'm going to you know, set standards, high standards, and I'm going to perform well, whatever it is that I do. You, you said a great thing of surprise that you managed to pull it off. Like, I, I assume it wasn't a, a, a simple straight line to make the event happen. And I'm going to say the obvious, due to the pandemic as well, I bet that made things interesting of how things got done. C- could you just share, like, behind the scenes of, like, how hard it was to actually pull off that event, um, reflecting from all these other variables you couldn't control like COVID or the event industry has taken a hit anyway. But, uh, you, you know, it, I'm just curious. So COVID delayed the event one year and then it made it 30% more costly. So that was a that was a COVID uh, uh, variable that we had not contemplated. The event was the most complicated event that I've ever done because it was a 10-ring circus. So if you tell me, okay, put together a soccer match. I put together over, I think, 40 or 50 soccer matches, professional matches. So I'm not going to say I can put together a soccer match in my sleep, but I know what I'm doing. been doing it repetitively is the right word. Right? Anything that you do and you repeat, you get good at, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's the, the key of any successful athlete and also for any successful businessman. If you do things a lot, you get good at it. But here it is, okay, so you're going to put together a soccer match. No, you're not going to put together a soccer match. You're going to put together four soccer matches in two days. Okay, bit, bit of a challenge. You're going to put together women's matches, a men's match, an all-star match, an international match, special abilities match. We did, we did a match for... For, for handicapped kids uh, from La Liga from Spain that, that came uh, and played against the handicapped uh, kids from uh, the MLS. So, I mean, it was really a lot happening. But then take that back and think about this. You have to build the soccer pitch. You know, that, that's a variable that I've never been confronted with. Now, has anybody ever built in the history of soccer or the world a professional soccer pitch from scratch in five days to play a league match? The answer is no. So we had to understand whether that was even feasible. And I imagine this is a multi-multi-million dollar event. So imagine that you have to do all of this, but if a variable fails, nothing works. So that, that by the time I'm starting to build that pitch five days before the event, I've already hired all the teams, all the artists. I've built the music stage. I've already spent millions of dollars that I cannot take back. If that pitch fails, everything else I've done is worth zero. So now I need to put all my faith on the person that is going to construct that pitch. So I meet with this guy, a company called Bush Turf. And they assured me they could do it, right? A lot of confidence. Midway through the process, unfortunately, the owner of Bush Turf, Steve Bush, dies uh, of an unexpected heart attack. So now the company that um, was going to build a pitch for me 
is minus their CEO and sort of person who really was the most experienced in this in this subject. And now it's being taken over by a younger uh, employee who has all the confidence in the world and meets with me and says, you know, you know, the, the, the passing of Steve is absolutely terrible news, but I can pull it off. And so now I have to trust somebody very young who's just taken over the company. And but he has such confidence that I believed, uh, I believed in what in, in his ability. So I take the leap of faith and we build the pitch, right? And we pulled it off in five days uh, and built the most beautiful pitch. Furthermore, we brought the Colombian uh, champions to play uh, America de Cali Millonarios. Um, and they told me that that pitch we built in five days was better than 90% of all the pitches at all their stadiums in Colombia. Uh, same goes for the NWSL match uh, and team. So, so this was incredibly complicated in so many things because there were so many variables. So I had to build a soccer pitch. I had to hire the teams. I had to build a music stage. I had to hire the artists, right? I had to program all the other events that surrounded uh, the, the main events, which were music and soccer. So it was really like a 10-ring ten, ten service. It was very, very hard and, and very, very expensive. And, and I think, like I said, I think, you know, nobody had ever done it before because of that, because it was very hard and very expensive to do. But I kind of have a knack for, you know, impossible things like building a mountain at the beach. So, Tom, Al, I need to just touch on one thing. You said faith and confidence a couple of times. You know, I know we're so used to these words, but in reality of when things are, you know, hands on, how did you stay confident during those moments or how did you? trust patience and faith during that period like i think this is vital in like football business industry in general but yeah like how did you cope looking back now and why faith and confidence is vital too well i think you have to be confident in 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 your ability and your skills i think that's 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 key you have to know exactly what you're able to do and you also have to be aware of your limitations right i will not be able to build a rocket ship to go to the moon i'm not an engineer I'm not a, a scientist, and that would be an unattainable ob objective for me, even though I think it's a great idea. But I know that I can put together a kick-ass event, no matter how complex it is. I have decades of experience in the industry, really. So I've come to build that confidence that I can do anything that I set myself to do in the, in the event entertainment industry. So with that confidence, I can tackle, you know, the, the complexity of the event. And what I usually do Ed, is that I take one thing at a time and I focus on resolving. So the first thing was, how are we gonna build this pitch? Can we build this pitch? Once we got done past that, that it was feasible, then we started looking at all, all, all the other variables that you know, putting an event like this uh, implies. So uh, it's definitely a challenge, uh, but, uh, but we pulled it off. Amazing, Look, I hope people are taking notes, but I need now transition to women's football like, Take the picture there and then really what inspired you to be so inspired but motivated in women's football? Because when we met, you just bursted with so much energy of like, this is the future of the football industry, not just, you know, men's football versus women's football. You're so passionate about women's football and the growth. So paint that picture, but also explain what the Women's Cup is as well too, please. All right. So I'll start by telling you how I got involved with the Women's Cup, which, uh, which is also an interesting story. I was introduced to a friend. Uh, who's now uh, one of my business partners, who came to me and he said, I want to do a women's 
this is about four years ago, a women's football tournament. At the time, I was doing nothing but men. Um, and I was very well-versed in the men's industry, both at the national team level as well as the club level. And so he, he insisted that, that, that it was interesting to get involved in, in women's football and that, that he wanted me to, to execute the event for him. And I said, listen, um, you know, I don't want you to lose your money. I've lost a lot of money in the soccer industry before I started making money, understanding how it works. And I don't want you to lose your money. So here's what I'm going to do for you. We're going we're gonna to run a, we're going to do a consulting, uh, we're going to do a consulting report. And we're going to, I'm going to pick the variables of women's soccer so I can understand fully, you know, wh where it is and where it's going. You know, ATP, average ticket prices, average attendance, best markets in the, in the United States to, to play. And so I have a, a consulting, as part of the group, I have a consulting company called FXC. And so I said, look, we're going to have FXC uh, run a consulting report on women's soccer, women's football. And then I will let you know whether it's a good idea for you to invest your money in this, in this sport. And when the report came back, I was just amazed. I mean, it just blew me out of the water. I mean, the numbers were just incredible. The engagement was incredible. The variables, everything about it was just incredible. So I said to them, listen, um, not only will I, you know, execute this event with you, but I'll I'll buy into it as well. I'll put my money where my mouth is. I really believe in in women's soccer. So I got involved and we developed the women's cup. And at first it was very, very complicated because um, you have to fight, as I mentioned to you earlier, for dates. So everybody's got their own interests and everybody has, you know, their priorities. And we have to play league match and we have to play this other match first. And the stadium is, you know, taken up by three tenants because there's MLS, there's NWSL. There's all kinds of, uh, of pressure for those particular um, uh, slots. So very complicated. So we started going from place to place to see what, what was going to happen. At first, we're going to do it in Portland and then we're going to do it in Utah and then we're going to do it in Orlando. And finally, um, I found out that Louisville, Kentucky, was um, had just purchased a, a women's team franchise, and they built this most beautiful, brand new fifteen thousand seat stadium. So I went to Louisville, check it out, and I thought that this is the place. Now, this is the place for women's soccer. And so that's um, that's how the women's cup got started. In the first year, we got the Free Center Man and Bayern Munich to come and play against two teams from the NWSL, and it was an amazing event and, and great results. And this last year, we grew from four to six teams, and we got Tottenham and AC Milan, and we brought teams from uh, Japan. We had Tokyo Beleza from Japan and Cuba America from Mexico, and a couple of the teams from the USA, All Rain uh, with Megan Rapino and Rose Lavelle um, against Louisville. So really, it's been an incredible, incredible run with the Women's Cup. We're growing like crazy. I love, I, I said this at the Athens uh, Summit, and I'll say it again. I think it's the most exciting space to be involved in in football today. If, if, if you're going to get involved in football today at any level, and I can give you one recommendation, is get involved in women's football. I love that statement, but one thing I've admired what you've just said with that story with the friendly partnered. We won't talk about research because I bet that's cost a fortune of other people would want, but I want to talk about one keyword because it's what I've admired from the conversation in the restaurant. Integrity. Like, how vital is integrity not just in like sports industry or sport business or football business, but that is a great example where I'm going to praise you of like 
why integrity and trust is massive, which people undermise. And you probably got more experience than I do, then things not working out in business because of bad things that happen, like dodgy business. But I'm just saying, I loved how you just shared. You put your money mouth is first with the partners just to create that trust and integrity. But I love your thoughts on that because it's all well saying work in women's football, but go have the right attitude and right value. So I praised you just then, John, but I would love your thoughts of why integrity is vital in the football industry. Well, I think integrity is vital in the football industry, is vital in any business, and is vital in life in general. Um, it is who you are. It, 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 integrity is what, what makes makes the person that you are. And that's your your presentation card. That's your business card. You know, um, I've worked in other businesses, um, you know, and in and, and other industries. And uh, I've always, you know, held integrity as one of the, the highest, you know, highest uh, values that, that, that anybody can have. Um, the soccer industry, as any industry or any business, is, is a complicated one. And there's a lot of people that are <clears throat> maybe out there to make a fast buck. And I've never been one for fast bucks. I don't believe in fast bucks. Uh, you know, easy come, easy go. Uh, so I think that, um, that integrity is what builds the foundations for long-lasting success. And touching on this, because I want to talk about this networking, but that integrity and having that long mindset, how has that built relationships over the time? Because like the NASCAR example, I assume it was networking that made it happen then. Like how has networking supported you? I'm I'm going in a little bit different direction, but I was thinking here, like fishing, book. I'm like, I bet the relationships you've built with all these amazing people around the world have influence to where the Women's Cup is with all the network you've built over time. So we all know building a network's important, but reflecting how vital has it been through your journey? Well, I think networking is everything. It's everything. If I can give another advice to to those that are getting started in the industry, um, business is about relationships. It's all about relationships. And it's how you cultivate and you maintain and you, you know, you respect those relationships. So networking allows you to build relationships. So once those relationships are built, you're just a phone call away from anybody. When you start out in the industry, nobody will, nobody will take your call. I'm telling you right now, nobody takes your call, right? You're nobody and nobody takes your call. Once you start building that network, you start getting inside. You're not no longer looking at, at the business from the outside. You're actually inside. And once you're inside, you can make things happen, Right. And like you've just said, your integrity is your business card. So it sort of works hand in hand. Right. Carry on. So I, I thought you were about to say something. I wasn't sure. No, no. I said everybody. Like, it's, a, it's like all the industries are very small industries. It doesn't matter which industry you're involved in, right? Whether it's the movie industry or the TV industry. or the, so It's it's always small. And the people that you that you do business with, you're going to run into into them you know, all the time. And so one day they might be at one club. Then they'll be at another club. And, uh, and so... You know, I think it's it's always good not to burn bridges. It's always good to leave you know, things in good terms. Now, you'll get screwed in business, you know, and you'll get screwed in soccer. Um, but you have to always take these as learning lessons, you know, and see who is worth doing business with in the future. And then, you know, if you've run into somebody that was not, uh, you know, uh, that was not fair with you, uh, then the next time that opportunity comes to do business with them, you say, well, thank you very much, you know, fool me once. Um, 
And so you have to, you know, have your eyes open, but do always, always sort of do the best that you can to to hold on to your values that that not of integrity. Hundred percent. Now putting you on the spot again, but it is with excitement. Twenty twenty three. Like, what's the vision with the women's cup? Like, like you said to me, you had six teams last year. Like, what's what's John's game plan for twenty twenty three with the women's cup? Well. 2023 is going to be a very interesting year for the Women's Cup because it's a World Cup year. So, you know, every year we get pressure. Remember I told you at the beginning of the conversation with scheduling. That's like our biggest, biggest issue. We get scheduling pressure because last year we had the Euros, Women Euros. And the year before we had the Olympics. And this, and the next year we have the World Cup. So every summer there happens to be something that is keeping players busy, teams tied up. So what we do is that we put our event together in that one week slot where the Europeans are coming off their summer vacation before they start their Champions League play, which usually happens in mid-August. But this year, because the World Cup is going to happen in early September. So we're forced to change the dates on the on the Women's Cup in 23. So that's already a challenge, right? The second challenge is scheduling with the NWSL. They have a very, very packed schedule because of the World Cup. All the leagues have a very packed schedule because they're having, you know, they're taking about a month off during that time. So uh, that that makes for uh, for a lot of games that need to be made up later on in the season. So what we've decided for this year, and we're still looking into it, and I'll give you sort of a, um, uh, how should I say this, a um, first, right? Um is we're looking to take this year, the 23, we're looking to take the Women's Cup abroad uh, and not play it in the United States. And we have chosen as the new venue for the Women's Cup in 23 to be what we consider to be the country where women's soccer is growing the most with the most engagement and the most incredible viewership and attendance, and that is Mexico. Uh, so in 23, we will most likely take the Women's Cup to Mexico and take advantage of that incredible growth that Mexican football is witnessing. And just so you get an idea, I'll give you two numbers. About a week ago, the finals of the Mexican Liga and Mexico Manil, uh were played between Club America and Tigres from Monterrey. The TV viewership for that match was $3 million. That's a women's league match. I'm not talking about national team. We're talking about women's league match. To put that into reference, the viewership for the NWSL finals, which is supposedly the premier league for women's soccer in the world, prime time two weeks earlier, 975,000. So three times more, three times more Mexicans tuned in to watch their women's final than Americans tuned in to watch their women's club final. But even better, the viewership for the MLS final, which was probably the most incredible MLS match ever to be played between LA Galaxy and, and Philadelphia, that viewership was 2.5 million, 2.5 million. So the Mexican women outperformed the American men at the club level in viewership. That tells you where Mexico is today, women's soccer-wise. 54,000 on the 
first match and 56,000 on the return match for attendance, both records uh, for for club play. Um, in essence, you know, we feel it's a just terrific market, and we're so excited that that we'll get a chance to to play in in in, in Mexico in 23. I can hear the excitement through your voice. My goodness, and thank you for sharing that behind-the-scenes secret. See, I told you guys there's a bonus. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> Look, John, I've been blown away with all the different conversations. But really quickly, reflecting, like, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now? Wow. I guess the thrill of doing different things. The thrill of having a dream and executing it. The thrill of knowing that everything is possible if you put your mind and hard work behind it. That's probably what I enjoy the most. Awesome. And like anything, I like to finish with an inspirational question. And my goodness, like case study after case study, also like guidance tips with like integrity is your business card, which I love. But if you had to like sum up from today's conversation, like what three core tips would you give to the listener right now with regards to like starting a career in the sport and entertainment industry? Like what would they be? Well, like I said, the first thing, which I mentioned earlier in the conversation, is make sure you absolutely love what you do. You will not last a day or a week or a month in the soccer industry if you don't love what you do because you're going to be overworked and underpaid. That's the first and biggest advice. And then the next advice would be be true to your fundamentals, to your beliefs, to your strategy, to your integrity, you know, maintain a objective, set a, a course uh, as if you were in a ship where you, you know, you want to head, you know, 280 degrees to, to land and that's where you want to go, then stay the course. You're going to get a lot of times where you're going to want to, you know, give it all up. Um, and maybe the third, you know, the third uh, advice I can think of is, um, be ready to fail before you succeed and to fail a lot and don't get disappointed. It's just part of the process. Amazing. And to be fair, John, that's what you've taught me the most. Like seriously, the, the third one in particular, like going back to this conversation in Greece with those bowler muscles, I was sitting there going, I was so grateful. I'm going to say it right now. I was so grateful to like had that conversation, but in my mind, John, I was like, this is my passion, my podcast show, which this is my eighth season. You're like the first episode. So I've been doing this eight years now. And I'm like, it's conversations like this. That's the reality of working in this industry. So yeah, on that note, thank you for teaching me that lesson of failure. But most importantly, thank you so much for today's conversation. And most importantly, how can people interact with you and the Women's Cup? Like where are the go-to places for more information? So so the Women's Cup uh, dot world, the Women's Cup dot world is our URL. You can get all information there related to the Women's Cup. And um, and you can look me up on LinkedIn and and, and DM me, uh, John Paul Raynal. Uh, look me up. I'd be happy to answer any questions or, you know, give anybody that's getting started in the industry or even a seasoned veteran that we can share ideas, be happy to interact. Amazing. To all the listeners listening, all those links will be on my blog with the this podcast. As I said already, John, Real joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. It's been amazing talking to you. I love your energy, your enthusiasm. You're going to kick ass in the industry. I know it. So we'll be seeing you very soon. Wow. What a great podcast to kickstart season eight. I'm not going to lie. I'm absolutely pumped. 
after listening to that podcast. There's so many learning lessons. And again, I am super, super grateful for John taking the time and share his sports career journey with you or us. Like I'm a big believer we can learn from each other. And where can I start? Firstly, I hope you've got a better understanding how the women's football industry is really at an exciting space, but also having the foundation that at the end of the day, sports is a mega event industry and it's entertainment. Like the one thing that I loved with regards to Soccer Fest of that great concept that he said, if he, when he said, John, going to a men's game, you know, you're looking at three hours. He created a festival for a family experience that meant they were there for 10 hours. So from a business standpoint, there was more entertainment, but also they're there longer at an event. That was such like a light bulb moment of just keeping things simple. Um, I know building a pitch under five days or within five days was a challenge, but with regards to business concept, I think that's what I really enjoyed, John, as well, of how he weaved his story with regards to personal experiences, failures, like that one in the stadium at the Etihad with Argentina, Italy. When he shared me that story in Athens, I was shocked, but I was so humbled that he really kindly shared this on the podcast because it's not a smooth industry um, with regards to any events, but particularly in the football industry, it's never that easy said than done with regards to, like he said, when Messi got injured, when Italy didn't make the World Cup, these metrics, which you have no control, influence the outcome. So I really do hope you've enjoyed it as much as I did. But with regards to like a skill set perspective, this is vital that I want about shares a reflection point. Having that mindset of marketing in the football industry, that is my one of the biggest takeaways. Like John said right at the beginning with that mountain on an Argentina beach, doing things differently. I think that's the one concept I want you to really think about after listening to this because that's what I will be doing. After this, I'll be going on a walk, really reflecting what John said and put it into practice with my personal development and the growth of this podcast show too. Because like anything, I'm so grateful for you listening to the show over the last eight years if you're a loyal listener. But you've got to be different to stay fresh. So I'm really curious of what was your biggest takeaway. Let me know on Instagram or LinkedIn or Twitter at edbowers101. I really love to hear your thoughts. Because if you haven't learned something from here, I'll be absolutely shocked. So on that note, really apply that one biggest learning lesson and then put it into action with regards to your personal development now and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. John said, you have to be confident in your ability and skills. That is key. Then integrity makes the person you are. It's your business card when pursuing a career in the football industry.